The reading is from 1 John 2, verse 18, to 1 John 3, verse 6. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning, No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to see some new faces as well. Welcome. We say it every week because we mean it. Please don't run away. Um, Please stay around at the end of the service. Grab yourself another drink. Please make yourself known to us. Say hi. Ask us questions. But you're really welcome if it's your first time. You're welcome amongst us. I want to share with you a true story to start up with, a few years ago, we crossed the Atlantic, saved up our money, got on a plane, crossed the Atlantic, not on a boat, on a plane, and we landed in Boston, and that's where the troubles began. We uh, found ourselves in deep water with the Department of Homeland Security. Now, if there's one group of people you don't want to find yourself in deep water with, it's those guys. They have a sense of humor failure. I think it's removed at interview. They just don't smile. Um, you know, emotional intelligence or lack of is a job requirement. I hope this isn't going to America, by the way. 
But we found ourselves in trouble because as the passports were given out to the man in the little booth, they said, who's, uh, who's Sam? And the implication was from Sam was that Sam didn't belong there because Sam should have been traveling on a different passport. He was a member of a different country. He was born in America, and actually he did belong there, but not on the passport we had. We were ushered, as the blood pressure was now increasing and sweat was now dropping, to a side room. What's going to happen next? We got told off. He should have been traveling on an American passport because he was born in Massachusetts, not an English one. If we didn't rectify this the next time, there may not be a next time, we're going to get a thousand pound fine, no less. And he may be taken off our hands for a little while whilst we enjoy a great holiday. <laughs> now, there's an idea. But the point is this, he's a member of a different country and his citizenship should have been shown in a blue passport, not a red European one. Won't have those for much longer perhaps. 1 John, let me just take a step back, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. John is wrestling with this big issue. How do you know that you're a Christian? There is a way that you can know for sure that you're a Christian. And he says there are three tests. It's not about a passport. It's not about a birth certificate. But there are three tests that you can pass or fail that show, that illustrate, that demonstrate whether you're a Christian or not. Let me prove it to you. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. If you've got a Bible, please check. Chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. There's the character test. You can know if God has come into your life by a change of character. That means a change of behavior. That means fruit. A fruit that's not just bolted on accidentally. It's fruit that grows organically from the inside to the outside. It's the character test. You become more like Jesus. The more he's at work in your heart, there's an internal revolution, a revolution from the inside. It's God at work in your character. It's the first test. It's the character test. Here's the second one. Verse 7 of chapter 2 is where it begins. The second test is the love test. They're interlinked, character and love, but not only is your character changed from the inside out, but you become a more loving and compassionate person. And it's interesting to see you're loving and compassionate to people that you find hard to love, not those that you find easy to love. And now here's the third test. That's why we've gone back to verse 3 of chapter 2. How can you know that you're a Christian if it's not a passport, if it's not a, a certificate that you're given at a church, a churchy person, a religious person? These three tests of character, love, and this is not about fitness, but it's about your relationship to the core. Now you can see I've got one or two issues as age increases that my core has gone south, it's becoming more relaxed rather than a core, I've exchanged it for a keg. Um, but this is the relationship test and the doctrinal test to the core truths of Christianity. Let's read verse 19 together. This is how we know it's the last hour. Chapter 2 verse 19. They, we're talking about Christians, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Who is he talking about? Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. Here's the test. The third test of character love, but then here's the third test, your relationship to the core of Christianity. It's not a muscular group somewhere down here or a bit, a bit lower down for me now. 
What is your relationship, point number one, to the core doctrinal truths of Christianity? How is your core? Here's the core test. Let's look at it together. Point number one. What's your relationship to the core truths of Christianity? In the modern world, there are two versions of truth, at least two versions of truth. There's, uh, and this is simplistic, but there is the biblical understanding of what truth is. Biblical understanding of truth is it's objective. It's not from within, it's from without. It's God-given truth that is not subjective to our feelings, but it's true reality. It exists apart from us. It's not a construct that we can project. It's not a construct that we can change. Biblical understanding of truth coming from a God who is truth and loves truth and shapes and defines and speaks truth is objective truth. It's not subjective truth. It's truth that we have to recognize if we want to become a Christian. It's truth that we have to embrace and know and enjoy when we move from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of light. It's another way that 1 John talks about what it means to become a, a Christian. It's truth. But then there's another way that we can understand truth in a contemporary sense, you could say. Truth is not subjective, it's objective. Truth is not eternal, it's pliable. Truth is not um, something that you can challenge. Rather, truth is something you can challenge. It can be fake. Whether it be fake news or fake truth, your truth is not necessarily mine. So there's a pop group about uh, 15 years ago, showing my age, called the Manic Street Preachers. And they said, here's my truth, show me yours. And a wonderful album cover and a wonderful song that says, if you tolerate this truth being eroded, then your children will be next. It's a great album, some choice language in it, but some of it is good. And now here we come to verse 22. What is this talk about antichrist? It seems very strange. This is what I think it means. Verse 22, who is the liar? Some Christians have gone out from the church and the church that John is writing to are a bit unnerved. Were they Christians or not? And here's John saying, let me boil it down to you. Verse 22, who is the liar? Who's the non-truth teller? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Now, John's not English, because an English person would not say that. They would say it more nicely. They would say, let's have a discussion about this. But here is John, and it's as if he gets his boxing gloves on and says, I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to tell you it's straight. This is 40% truth. No, 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 this is moonshine. This is 100% proof. I'm going to tell you what really matters. There are times, Christian says John, when you've just got to say those people are not out of line, they're liars. They're not just marginalizing the truth. They're not just poking a little bit of smoke to, to marginalize the truth. They're liars. And you need to steer clear of them. Now, how does this saying it like it is marry up with another teaching in the Bible that says that we need to be kind and gentle? We need to be people who are as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Well, I think the Bible is not contradicting here because it doesn't, but I think this is how we put it together. There are a list of things that we can disagree on as Christians and as non-Christians or not yet Christians. We can come and you say, I don't like the color of your shirt. It's the same as Dave's. You can say something like, I don't like the way you voted politically. I don't like the choice of the color in your home. I don't like your view getting closer to home now that's coming to the church. I don't agree with you on your position on women. 
I don't agree with you on your way you think about parenting and marriage. I don't agree with you on that. We need to say to one of the teaching of the Bible that we need to be as innocent as serpent and as wise as, as, wise as doves the other way around. We need to say there are things that we disagree on. And if you want to disagree with me on something that I hold dearly, my opinion, that's fine. Absolutely fine. I've got green in my house and you might like red. That's fine if it's something to do with me. But John says there are times when it comes to issues of truth, when it comes to issues of objective, Bible-saturated, gospel, foundational truth, that we need to go our separate ways. That you need to say it like it is, because it's not about my preferences. This is about the gospel. And this is what John is doing here. John, like a brilliant chef, says, I could tell you loads of doctrine. I could tell you loads of truth about God and the world and the Bible and the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come as like an emergency service to rescue us. Let me put it into one sentence. Let me put it into a, an irreducible minimum. Let me boil it down to you. Let me condense it. And it's here in verse 22. Who's the liar? Says the, says the ESV. Who's the liar? He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Friends, there are some hills that you need to be able to die upon. There are lots that you need to say, no, you can differ on that, we can disagree on that. But here is one that as a church, as a Christian, here is a test of love, of character, and now your core, a core doctrine of the Christian faith. Will you die upon the hill that Jesus Christ is not a nice person? He's not an ordinary man. He's not God alone. He's not man alone. He is the God-man. He's the Messiah who God sent from heaven to earth to die for the sins of the world. That's not something that we can disagree on. Do you believe in that or not? Will you part on that or not? Will you please walk out the door having asked the elders if I've gone off my rocker and start preaching a different gospel? Because there's no other gospel. You can get on a train at West Yule. You can get on a train at Epsom. Even Stoney if you live out in the sticks. Even Ashdead if you go further. You can choose your seat. I'm the sort of guy that likes going backwards. I like going forwards. I like by the door because then I can get out. You're on the same carriage. The preference is up to you. But isn't it so annoying? Aren't you tempted to say the odd colourful word in your mind when you get there at 7.38 for the 7.35 and you think, I've missed it. Rats, I've missed it. I'm not in a carriage. I'm not even in a different seat to normal. I'm on a different train. Here is John saying, if someone denies the authority of the gospel, if someone says that Jesus Christ was not fully man and fully God, if he did not die for the sins of the world, if there's another way for someone to be saved, you're not sitting in a different seat, you're not in a different carriage, you're on a different train. It's not liberal Christianity to, to deny this. It's not Christianity. It's a different religion. It's not good news. We're not going to say it's another gospel it's a lie. Now that's what is happening here. Here is John saying, what is your relationship to the core? The core doctrine of the Christian faith. Because people in the, the time that John was writing, he was not just saying this because it was on his chest. There were Gnostics, we've met them before. There were Gnostic people who were saying, Jesus Christ was not fully God and fully man. This is what happens according to the, the Gnostics. They said that Jesus was born, God descended on Jesus when he was baptized, and shortly before he died for the sins of the world on the cross, God left him. 
So he became uh, flesh, he was a human, and then he became divine at his baptism. But then God left him before he died for the sins of the world on the cross. So he was back to being a human again. And John says that is not the gospel. That's a lie. That's anathema. Anyone who says that is a liar. The Gnostics said, oh, but, but God wouldn't undergo suffering. God wouldn't die for the sins of the world. And John says, that's a lie. That's the gospel. Anyone who denies that is a liar. They're in the grip of a lie. Verse 22, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's God's anointed king, they haven't missed it. They're not in a different seat. They're not in a different carriage. They're on a different train. Such a person is the Antichrist. Strong, strong language. But John is saying, this really matters. If you deny the authority of the gospel, if you undermine it slightly, if you think that John is uh, over-egging the mark, then look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. He says the same thing. He says, anyone who says that Jesus has not come in the flesh is the spirit of the Antichrist. They are lying. They are attacking the gospel. They are robbing God of his glory because that's why Jesus came. Jesus was not just a wonderful man. He was the son of God. He's not an inspiring teacher. He's the rescuer that we need. You're not just disagreeing, friends, on a color of my uh, choice on my walls. This is the gospel. And it's founded on the personhood of Jesus Christ. Anyone who denies that Jesus is actually the Son of God is not preaching a gospel at all. They're preaching works. Because the gospel says that we cannot save ourselves, we need a rescuer. Do you really think that people burning to death in the Grenfell Tower tragedy, do you really think that they were saying, no, no, we can rescue ourselves? How on earth can a mother throw out of a, a, a burning building how could she let go of her little son or daughter? Because she knows that she can't save them themselves. And longing that someone with big enough hands can catch them like a rugby ball. Friends, if we don't see it this clearly, we're as if, it's as if we're having a picnic outside, a friend of mine said. As if we had a picnic outside. And here is the gospel, the great news that Jesus Christ came to rescue the sin, people from the sins of the world, from the reality of hell, from eternal judgment. If we don't go out and tell people in Epps Manual this truth, it's as if we're having a picnic outside the Grenfell Tower rather than picking up the 999 phone call. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ has come to rescue us. It's not about us saving ourselves. We can't. It's not about us going to church enough because it doesn't matter how many times you go to church. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Have you accepted the truth of the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that he and he alone can save you? That's just your relationship to the core, but it matters. It's not about physical training. That's of some worth, says Timothy. This really matters because it's eternal life. Friends, what is your relationship to the core teaching of Christianity? Do you know personally that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's not just king, he's my king. He's not just a rescuer, he rescued me. What's your relationship to the core? Verses 28 and 29 of chapter two move on. They're not just talking about the efforts and the mechanics of what it means to say that something is a lie and acknowledging what is true. John then says, this is the reality of what it means to be a Christian. Your relationship to the core, 
But then your understanding of the gift, that's the second point, your understanding of the gift. All of a sudden, John moves from kind of rebuking mode to being very emotive. He starts to emote, he starts to speak more passionately, he starts to uh, speak more vividly even, we could say. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. John says, Behold how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. This is a pretty old word, lavished. It's like you see on a marzipan on top of your Christmas cake. You know when you get the best bit that's really, really thick? Unless you don't like marzipan, then you exchange it for a bit more icing. This is a lavish word is uh, something that you do with a gift. So you're talking about love when you think of um, passion and attraction and uh, closeness to someone. But then John adds on to that this word of giving a gift. And that often we don't speak in that way anymore. It's a giving a gift to someone at a special occasion or an event. You've graduated, here's a gift. It's that kind of word. The only analogy we've got really is, uh, is when pe- two people get married, when a man and a woman get married together, they say, I give you everything that's mine and I accept everything that's yours, all your debt, I accept all my money you can have, that kind of stuff. But it's the reality of saying when two people come together, they are changed permanently. Not because they give stuff, but they give one another to each other. And it changes someone forever. And here is John beginning to wrestle, not with the truth, but with the glorious truth of the gospel. And he's saying, how great is the love the Father has, has given to us. Now there is a sense that God loves all of his creation. There is a sense that God loves everybody in the world. But the reality is that when someone moves from not being a Christian to becoming a Christian is that God's love is known in a peculiar way, in a specific way, not generalized anymore, but known intimately and personally and relationally in a way that it wasn't known beforehand. It's not uh, knowing God in a general sense, it's knowing him personally. You, you cross a line, it's a line of a relationship and intimacy and it brings his love and light and presence into your heart. It's a, it's a revolutionary love. And so here's John who says, verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished, bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now notice this from this verse. First of all, God says, or John says, that God has adopted us. We're now called by a different name. Notice that, we're called children of God. We're given a new name, a new status. We're accepted. We're part of a new family. We have a new identity and a new surname. But notice also from verse 1, you can miss it if you're not careful. It's not just that we're called children of God. John then says, and that is what we are. It's not just a name, it's not just a badge, it's not just a label, it's not just a birth certificate. It's a reality. We are now children of God. We have the status, not just the name. God is actually working in our hearts. We've been born anew. We've been born again. God's spirit is now living in our hearts. So we're changing from the inside out, revolutionary change. God's given us his new birth and his new nature. And so the Holy Spirit goes to work in us like he does in a, in a new building. Think of Joel and Margot just bought a, a house. It needs some work doing to it. They're going to get to work. And so too, when the Holy Spirit comes into the life of someone who's become a Christian, he goes to work. And there's lots that needs to change. But God has the power and loves changing people. But look at verses 28 to 29, backing up. 
not only is this reality we're not just called, but we are children of God. John is talking in verses 28 to 29 about the reality of new birth, of being born again, God's new life in our hearts. And then suddenly, and the NIV can be a little bit weak here, it says, chapter 3, verse 1, behold. You might have the word see. But it says, behold. This is what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to defend the truth, says John, verses 28 to 29. This is what it means to be a Christian. And then he stops in his track and says, Behold, behold, this is what it means to know God. He's writing and then he writes his word, Behold, with word art, it's bold, it's flashing, it's 72-point font, if anyone still uses word art, that is. And he says, This is what it means to be a Christian. When you know Jesus Christ personally, it changes everything. You start to see the fact that you're not just a child of God, you're not just a child by name, you really are regenerate, you've been made new from the inside out, and you start to just not know truth, it starts to make connections in your life. You start to say, hang on, if that's true, if I've become a new person, why do I struggle so much at work because I want people to approve of me? Why is my identity there when actually I've been given new life by God here? Why do I so struggle caring for my elderly parents? Why am I so selfish even as an older person when I should love them for all that they've done for me? Why do I struggle with my spouse? You start to make all these connections. What's going on in my heart because I've been made new? All these connections are possible because we've been born again. People who are Christians are not just people with certain amounts of knowledge. People that become Christians have a new heart. It's a change of character. And there's a man called Thomas Goodwin who had this wonderful way of taking normal illustrations and applying them to the gospel. So let me share this one to you. Imagine the scene of a father and a son walking down an alleyway. Beautiful sunny day. The son knows that the father loves him. The son knows that the father would do anything for him. The son knows that he's got the name, shares a name with his father because he's my dad. But then the father does something just ordinary, you may think. He takes his son by the hand, they weren't holding hands, and he embraces him and he kisses him and says, you're my son, I love you. And I'll do anything for you. Now what's changed? Nothing. He's still the son. He's still got the same name. He knows that his father loves him. But then he felt it. He understood that he shared the name, but then he felt closer because the father embraced him, put his arms around him. He doesn't get any new information as the father picks him up. But it's as if the information becomes new to him. Because Goodwin says the father embraces the son and uh, picks him up and expresses his love for him and gives him a big kiss on the cheek or on the lips. Now, friends, John is saying, how do you know that you're a Christian? Character, love, and your relationship to the core. And you might think, well, this is all a bit uh, airy-fairy and it's not talking uh, really my language. Friends, everybody can know this reality that you can know the embrace of God, so to speak. And if you're a Christian, you're thinking, well, I don't feel that. I know this is not all about feelings, but there is some reality of the emotiveness to Christianity. We're not just cerebral people. We're people that can know God mystically, 
because of the doctrinal truth that is so central to our faith. So how does it happen? How do you know the embrace of God? How do you know the closeness and the intimacy with God? Well, John has said in chapter 2, there are three tests. Are you obeying him? Are you spending time with him? Are you spending time with Christians who love him as much as you do, or even more than you do, so they can encourage you and spur you on? We're not going to know the embrace of God. We're not going to know the closeness of a father to the son if the son or the daughter is in a practice habitually, in an undercover sense, that is causing a distance between them. That means sin and holiness. Is there something in your life, if you're a professing Christian, and you say, I want to know this closeness, but there's a barrier in the way because of habitual behavior in your heart. And then John says... It's not enough just to have a relationship with the core. It's not enough just to know uh, God personally and know the gift of God that he's showered upon you, that he's lavished upon you. You need to marvel at it. You need to marvel at it. Thirdly, we need to marvel at the gospel. What do I mean? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, how great, says the NIV. The ESV translation of the Bible says, See what kind of love. The uh, old King James says, Behold, what manner of love. They all wrestle with how to translate this word that is outer worldly. There's a word here in the original language that's more helpfully perhaps says, Behold, from what country, where hath this come from? What country has this come from? What universe has this come from? Where has this out-of-worldly love that's been shown to me come from? That's more of the sense here. What planet, who on earth could lavish this love on me? It's so rich, it's so vast and wide and deep and broad. How unreal is this? This love, John is just getting so emotionally wrapped up with God's character and the nature of salvation here. He's saying... This is out of worldly. Where has this come from? This is so out of whack. This is not normal. This is not human. This is love so amazing, so divine. That's where John is in verse 1. Friends, Christian friends, when was the last time you felt something of that? When was the last time you didn't just assess your relationship to core truth? You didn't just feel a closeness to God. When was the last time you marveled that you were just awestruck, you were just open-mouthed, you were moved to tears about the height, the width, the costliness of the love of Jesus. It's not just understanding doctrine. You can have all the books in all the world and you cannot pass this test, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, to marvel at the gift. From what planet? Has this lavish love come from? It's not come from a planet, it's come from heaven. And this love is a person, his name is Jesus. Friends, here's the test. If you're new amongst us, here's the test you can take. As you walk out the door, even in your seat right now. Friends, if you think now, it is a miracle that God has rescued someone like me. If you think that, if you can say that, then that shows that you're a Christian. It's the acid test. I don't deserve to be rescued after all I've done, after all I've said, after all the beds I've slept in, after all the things that 
you know, God knows, but other people don't. All the mistakes I've made, the people I've hurt. Friends, God knows. And you can be a Christian this morning and you could say, God knows all of that and yet he loves me. If that takes your breath away, if you grasp that, it's a sign that you're a Christian. But if you think, let's flip it over, if you think, if God really knew who I was, and he does, if he really knew where I've been, and he does, well, God, I'm not good enough for God, then that shows that you're not yet a Christian because you think that when you clean yourself up, when you attend more, when you give more, when you read more, when you serve more, then God will be uh, pleased with you. That means you're trying to work to God by yourself. And that's no gospel at all, because you'll never be good enough for God. But if you marvel at the grace of God, it's a sign that you're a Christian. Friends, to the degree that you'll be able to behold the free grace of God, to the degree that you can meditate on the goodness of God and his mercy, it's a fire that can kindle and needs to be rekindled every day in your heart. So that when you struggle at work, when you face difficulties in the week to come, you might be struggling, as Andrew so helpfully prayed, working out, I'm confused, I can't see what's going on, but a Christian can say, I trust God because he's my father, and all he do is all things well. You can handle almost anything when you grasp the loving, lavish character of God. That's the gospel. And here it is put so helpfully. Friends, what's your relationship to the core do you understand the gift of the gospel? Do you marvel at the miraculous grace of God? One man put it like this from a different age. Is this you? Can you say and sing this? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, that you, my God, should die for me? Friends, one of the signs you're a Christian is that you can sing that and say it. How has God died for me when I've caused his pain? That's because Christianity is a gospel of grace. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we're so cozy as Christians to these remarkable truths of the gospel. This is not a religion, it's a living relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, warm our hearts and challenge us in our familiarity with you, our Father and our God. And for friends who are not yet Christians here this morning, I pray please that you would not leave them as you found them, but you would soften their hearts and you would answer their questions and you would show them Jesus as altogether lovely, even this morning. Amen.